Welcome to The Fully Lived Life, a podcast for those who are longing to pursue the full life and want to break free from anything that holds them back. Listen in as two friends, a psychologist, Dr. Mary, and a life coach, Jillian, talk about life, love, and purpose through the lens of faith, science, psychology, and life experiences. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mary here. I'm here in the studio on my own because I kicked Jillian out so I can speak and ramble on without interruptions. Uh, No, actually, Jillian and I talked about this and we decided that for this particular episode, because it's pretty much a straight teach, uh, it probably makes most sense for just one of us to be talking. And so I was voluntold or I volunteered. I don't know which, but anyway. Um, yeah, so hang in and listen in. I think it'll help give some perspective to some of the things that we've been talking about throughout our uh, podcast and why we love the Enneagram as much as we do. So just to give you a bit of my personal background, when I actually first heard about the Enneagram, I was very skeptical um, because the way I've been trained as a psychologist is that we look at assessments from how uh, valid they are, how reliable they are, how well it's been designed psychometrically. uh, And the Enneagram has very little of any of this. Um, So I thought of it just sort of like as a parlor trick, you know, what the heck, I'll try it just because it's fun and everybody's talking about it. And I was really shocked to see how accurate it actually was. So that's when I decided to do a little bit more digging into it. Uh, So the Enneagram actually has been around for, or the thoughts behind the Enneagram actually has been around for centuries. Uh, The modern version of it has been around since uh, the 1970s. And so that's a lot of what you probably see and read and hear about when you're surfing the net and when you have conversations with people. So the other thing about the Enneagram that makes it quite unique is that it's not actually owned by any particular company or person. So most personality tests, it's developed by an organization or a particular person, and they are the ones who kind of um, have the rights to it and control it. Uh, So because of it being sort of an open source type of um, personality test, it means that there's been tons of people who've contributed to it. So there's a lot of um, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, spiritual leaders, philosophers, tons of people. And so all that to say is that there's some fantastic information out there about the Enneagram, but then there's some things that really uh, should not be paid attention to. And depending on the teacher, you're going to hear their bias. So lucky you, you get to hear my bias. So my bias is um, formed uh, from years practicing psychology and working with uh, all sorts of folks and Um, my own journey of uh, growth and development. Uh, So there is that aspect of psychology, uh, personal growth in it, and also as a person of faith. So my spiritual life, uh, my spirituality is very important to me. And so uh, that is definitely one of the filters that I look at the Enneagram for, because I look at it as a way that we can um, understand how God has designed us. So um, the Enneagram is um, something that Jillian and I have been um, studying for some time and are both certified in it. And we are uh, primarily using the integrative Enneagram or IEQ-9 materials. And in this case, actually, the psychologist who um, 
uh, is the one who has uh, does all the work. He's actually done a, f- a lot of research uh, because he is a researcher. And so that of all the tests out there actually has quite a bit of um, psychometric validity and reliability. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Um, He's been able to demonstrate that it's approximately 94, I believe 94% accurate in in identifying the numbers that you are. So just that's the background. Okay, so the Enneagram. um, What I love about it is it kind of makes it real that how we see the world is not based on how it actually is, but it's through our lens. It's the way we are. And uh, it's a big part of why we get into um, trouble when we are talking with people with different filters and why we can be so adamant about our perspective and it's yet it's so different. And so it's not necessarily a right or wrong thing. It's just our perspective. And so if you think of it this way, we don't see the world the way it is, but we see the world the way we are. That um, is very illuminating, that thought. You know, and, you know, we are wired to pursue truth, um, but sometimes in our desire to find truth, um, we forget that truth is always through our own perspective. So even biblical truth, it's still through our perspective, our interpretation. So it requires a great degree of humility and uh, teachability, and a willingness to re-examine our belief systems and our perspectives on things. And that's what makes life super interesting. Um, So, you know, that's part of why the Enneagram is as powerful as it is, is because it's this dynamic model for human nature and how we understand ourselves and each other. So two caveats Um, before I go into more details of my thoughts around the Enneagram, is that the Enneagram is not meant uh, to be used to judge others. Oh, you're just a two. No wonder you're this way. No, because in fact, the Enneagram is to teach us about people's vulnerabilities and their fears and their insecurities. And so it ought to um, lead us to be more compassionate with each other. If we can understand why they do what they do, and it comes from a place of um, need and vulnerability, then we can have compassion for them. So that's one caveat. The other caveat is that we can't use the Enneagram as an excuse for why we do what we do. Oh, I'm just a two. I can't help myself. No, because the Enneagram is meant for personal growth. That's the whole idea. And so when you get involved with it and you start reading about it, people will often talk about, oh my gosh, it's so negative. It points out all my weaknesses. I don't, I'm not sure I like it. Uh, and that's because the focus is on growth. And I often say to people, if you read your results and it's an ouchie, there's probably truth in that. Okay, so, um, you know, I... I um, I love how the Enneagram helps us identify uh, our true self and our shadow self. And I'm going to talk about both. And we have talked about this in previous episodes, but I believe that we are all made in God's image, that God's creativity couldn't be contained by heaven. And it spilled out onto the earth in the beauty of nature that we see around us, but also in us. 
And his creativity is so immense that he did not create one single person to be identical with another. We are all incredibly unique. And each of our unique designs reflects some tiny aspect of God's glory. And all together, our bits and pieces of how we reflect God's glory is all together this beautiful tapestry of who God is. Isn't that amazing to think about? So as we live out of our true self, we are living out our calling. We are living out of who God has designed us to be as we reflect His glory. So it's not about our performance or our platform or our goals or that big thing that we do out there. And it's also actually godly to know ourselves. You know, personal growth is ultimately about discovering and living out of our true self, who we are in Christ, so that we're fulfilling our calling each day. Um, You know, some um, teachers think about self-awareness as selfish. Uh, It's too much navel-gazing. We should just think about God and look at God and that's it and not look to ourselves. But if we reframe it from saying that we're made in God's image, so knowing ourself is actually a godly pursuit, as long as the focus is on how we are living out of our true self and bringing God glory through that. Does that make sense? And, you know, uh, although we've been created with our true self, our lifetime is about this transformation as we become more and more our true self or more and more, as we say in the Christian vernacular, more like Jesus or that aspect of Jesus that we're designed to reflect. And transformation is a lifetime journey. It's a daily choice to have self-awareness and to recognize our triggers and to choose better um, and to choose a different path. Now, that's our true self. Now, what about our shadow self? What does that mean? Our shadow self came into being, you know, when, based on our temperament, based on our early childhood experiences, if you, re- if you keep in mind that we have incredibly strong survival instincts, and when we are first born, it's all about survival, And when we experience threats to our survival, we develop strategies to protect ourselves, to get our needs met. Um, And so our shadow self self comes into being to help us cope and navigate through life. And so the three basic survival instincts that we all have, but based on our temperament and our early childhood experiences, we will focus on one over another or over the other two. But the basic survival instincts are... Number one, self-preservation. So it's our basic needs for food and shelter and, you know, protection and all those things, our safety, right? The second one is our need for attachment and love, for the one-on-one intimate connections with each other, the relationships that we develop. And then the third is our group uh, belonging, our social status, how we fit into the, the larger group. Uh, and that uh, makes sense as you think about survival, where the you know relying on the group uh, helps us to survive as well. So based on that, we have these coping strategies. We develop what I call these weapons of choice, and they are actually they're good in that they help us survive, and they're helpful until they're not. Because what ha- happens is that when we get triggered, our shadow self can show up, and we end up 
using the same old, same old strategies and we get stuck and we don't grow anymore. So the other words you may have heard about shadow self, some language you may have heard is ego personality uh, or idealized self. It's how we want to be perceived by others. So as an example, as a two, I want to be perceived by others as helpful and kind and caring and all that. And I will tend to rely on that when I feel threatened or my image is, uh, is not, is being threatened. All right. Now, talking about the shadow self and the reason why you may hear other people talk about false self versus shadow self. I prefer the shadow self because false self just sounds like it is bad and we just got to kick it to the curb. But actually, if we think about our shadow self as uh, adaptive, at least in the early stages, because it helped us survive, then we can have compassion for our shadow self. Our shadow self came into being to protect us. And so our shadow self houses our vulnerable emotions of fear and insecurity and shame and our unmet needs. And when our shadow self shows up, rather than just going like, oh, this is bad, this is bad, it's being able to go, oh, I've just been triggered with my fear or my insecurity or my shame or my unmet needs. So really we need to have, instead of um, kicking our shadow self to the curb, we need to have self-awareness, which is knowing when our shadow self shows up and why. We need to have self-compassion because there's a reason why our shadow self showed up. And we need to give empathy for those vulnerable emotions and needs and fears that we have. But importantly, we also need self-regulation, which is the choice to do better. So knowing our responses, our automatic responses and why, and then choosing better. So um, if we think about our self as an iceberg, um, you know, an iceberg only has the, you know, top, I don't know, 15, 20%, I don't even know, but the top part that's showing above the waterline. And then there's so much that's hidden below the waterline. So if you look at what's above the waterline, that would be our behavior, our actions, things that people can see. And a lot of people kind of just stay there. And that's where we can um, lack uh, depth in our self-insight. Um, many personality tests, by the way, tend to just focus on the uh, uh, above the waterline behavior. And so it's important to go below the waterline. So below the waterline is our personality or our ego personality or the way that we uh, respond or act or show up and, you know, the, the, what we often talk about, the personality. So that's below the waterline. And so my personality being outgoing, introverted, you know, uh, warm, reserved, that's below the waterline. And below that, though, is our defenses. So the defenses are there when we feel threatened and so it could be things like, um, you know, my defense mechanism of, of uh, denial. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. You know, you know, when things um, are going um, dark inside of me, I might just sort of deny that that's actually how I'm feeling. Um, and underlying that, though, is our motivations. And the Enneagram focuses a lot on our motivations. And in fact, every one of the types, which there are nine types on the Enneagram, all have a unique motivation to them. So um, what's important to keep in mind is that although we may have access to lots of different behaviors, 
and this could be also why sometimes it's hard for people to identify what number they are, our motivation, our underlying motivation uh, remains the same regardless. Uh, so my behavior with Jillian may be exactly the same. Um, as an example, I might, uh, we might both talk a lot. <laughs> and when I'm triggered, my motivation is I may be talking a lot to, um, as a two, to try to gain your, your like or your love for me. Whereas Jillian may be talking a lot because she's protecting herself from feeling vulnerable. You know, she's motivated to, um, to feel in control and to feel strong. Right. So different underlying motivations, but our behaviors on the outside may look exactly the same. That's why it's so important to understand the underlying motivations. Well, even deeper underlying our motivations is our fears. And that's what leads to all of this, our underlying fears. And each of the numbers will have different fears. Uh, so I was recently asked, the question is like, are some personalities more fearful than others? And my answer is no, we're all fearful, but we, as in we all have fear, but we all respond to it differently depending on our temperament. Also our level of integration and health, of course, plays into that. Okay, so knowing that we all are driven at some deep level by some fear can help us uh, choose better for ourselves, but also have compassion for other people. Does that make sense? Okay. So the Enneagram is, like I said already, we've talked about before, is this nine types. But even within that, these nine types are clustered into three centers of intelligence or centers of expression. That's what they call. And I, I love this because it really lines up so nicely with how God has created us and how science has proven again and again to be true. So we have a body center, or it's also called the action center. We have a feeling center or a heart center. We have a thinking center or a head center. So makes sense. We have body, we have a mind, and we have our hearts or our emotions. And we have all of them. But depending on our personality and our childhood experiences, we'll gravitate towards one of the centers more so than the others. Um, so with each of the centers, there are specific needs that we have and it gets expressed differently. So let's start with, oh, and the other thing I want to say is that each of these, we call them the centers of intelligence because science is now showing that we actually have brain neurons in every single one of those centers. So we often think about the brain neurons as the brain, obviously the head, but our heart actually has neural pathways that gives us information that are highly intelligent and our body or, or our gut also has neural um, neurons that are sources of intelligence that give us information. So if we're only relying on one center, then we're not getting the fullness of all the data that we can have. So that is why it's so important to be aware of the three centers of intelligence. And part of integration is growth is, although I recognize that I'm Maybe in, I am in the heart center. I need to grow in my ability to access my head center as well as my body center. And that gives me the most balanced source of information. Okay, so starting with the head, uh, the body center, which is at the top of the circle or the nine, um, <clears throat> the, the way that's designed, the body center 
or called the Action Center, or also called the Gut Center, it is in there, the numbers are eight, nine, and one. And in that is the need for power and control and autonomy and self-efficacy and dignity. And when that's being threatened, or those needs aren't being met, we're going to experience anger. And 891 express and experience that anger differently. Um, And now going into the heart center or the feeling center, which is two, three, four, our need there is for esteem and affection and belonging and um, worth and connection. And when those needs aren't being met or we're feeling threatened in that, we're going to experience shame. So shame is one of those interesting emotions because um, it actually triggers in the pain center. And so we do everything possible to (laughs) avoid the feeling of shame. But it is one of those emotions that comes pre-verbally, even before we had language. And it came the very first time our parents corrected us when we're reaching for that, you know, hot stove. And so there's... um, recognizing how shame can control us is super important. And we talk about shame in, in, in a number of our podcasts. So moving to the head center, which is five, six, and seven, um, that is our need for security and survival and uh, predictability and safety. And when those needs aren't being met or that's being threatened, we're going to experience fear. Now, saying these emotions, we all have anger, shame, and fear. Different personalities will experience them differently, express them differently, and also be uh, uh, more or less aware of those emotions. So growth for all of us is becoming aware of how much we experience those emotions and how much it can control our reactions. Um, And there is a a survival instinct for all of these. Uh, Anger, shame, and fear are hot emotions, which means we feel it almost instantaneously and very strongly. And it moves us to action to protect ourselves so that we survive better. Um, And in contrast, we've talked about this before, to our cooler emotions like love and compassion and joy, uh, they take longer to come to our awareness because it's not as linked into our survival. So as you think about it, when we have these hot emotions, if we're not aware of it, it's going to lead us down a difficult path if we're reacting and we don't understand why we're reacting the way that we do. Um, Now, just to kind of give a bit more information around the three centers, with the head, it's like, uh, sorry, uh, let's start with the body. With the body, it's like engaging the world through activity and our sensory information to assert and maintain a sense of control. And in this center, it's generally more impassioned than emotional. So they often project their energy into others um, as an unconscious way of kind of dissipating this static uh, noise of anger or frustration. And in the um, heart center, it's more leaning into their emotional intelligence. And so they have a strong social presence and tend to be more emotionally present than other types. And they um, can actually be emotionally highly intelligent about others, but out of touch with their own feelings and emotional needs. And head centers, they use their mental faculties to assess and address everything in life uh, as it may be experienced as a threat or an assault on their inner state. And they believe in competency as a cure for instability. 
and uh, they they forecast as a way to help them attain uh, a sense of stability. Okay, so um, I'm not going to go into details about the different motivations for the numbers because that's something that we talk about in the uh, in many of our podcasts and also you can read about it. I just want to focus more on the overall concept around the uh, Enneagram. Um, the other thing I do want to talk about is uh, you may have heard of the word instincts or subtypes. So layer on top of the nine types is something called instincts. As I mentioned earlier in the recording around self-preservation, one-on-one, or that's our connection in an intimate relationships or social. And when you have these three layers on top of it, you end up having quite distinct flavors for each of the numbers. So uh, two self-preservation versus social versus one-on-one are going to look different, although our inner motivations will be the same. And that's where, um, if you do the math, it ends up being 27 types. And again, that's how come we can have so much uniqueness. And in each of the center, one of the subtypes will be what they call the countertype. So they'll even actually look opposite um, than what others are. So just a little bit of a brief uh, explanation of the subtypes, because I think it's important to understand Um, So the self-preservation is also known as survival or preserving. And the key drive in the self-preservation is uh, focusing on self. And by the way, this doesn't mean selfish. It just focuses on self as a uh, focus on looking after myself or getting what I need. And underlying it is because of the under individual needs may not have been met by others as well. Uh, they, they kind of have this focus to take care of their individual needs and they focus on well-being, material, security, physical safety and comfort. And they tend to notice practical realities and the physical environment. Um, their underlying fear is not surviving. Uh, and they have this fundamental belief that they can't count on anyone and they have to take responsibility for their own safety and needs because others may not be able to give them what they need. And so their energy tends to be uh, grounded and focused on that. Now, the shadow side for uh, self-preservation may be that they will hoard their energy or their resources and they may in fact resent or resist Uh, the demands of others because they have to feel like they have enough to take care of their basic needs. Um, the, the, as I mentioned, um, people sometimes think of self-preservation as selfish, but it's not. It's about um, self-preservation with an instinct uh, for that, but they actually can care for others uh, greatly. It's just that they tend to care for others in more practical ways. So uh, the second one, one one-on-one, is a focus on intimacy and it's a focus on us. So you and me, and they want to connect with others. They also seek intensity uh, of experience. And what's important to them is about sharing and connection. And they focus on intense experiences and connections with others. Um, And they tend to notice interpersonal relationships. They tend to uh, notice things that bring energy uh, and synergy. But their underlying fear is of being unwanted. And they have a fundamental belief of you and me versus the world, which means that they have to rely on the alliances or connections that they build with others to keep them safe. 
So they tend to be higher energy, more passionate, more intense personalities. And their shadow side, though, is that this intensity can sometimes lead to conflict or disruption, or they can even be provocative just to kind of stir up some intensity. And the myth, though, is that this one-on-one, um, and, and sometimes it's called sexual subtype, is, uh, is like uh, it's sexual, like sexuality, and it's not. It's, it's more about this intensity and it's about the connection. Now, the um, uh, social subtype, the, the focus is on the group and navigating the group. And so their uh, drive, their key drive is on the we, on the all of us. It's on where they fit into the group and how do they navigate the system. And what's important to the social subtype is the greater good. And they tend to focus on status, on the dynamics within the group, on the hierarchy in the group, um, because it's a, about you know where they fit into that. And they tend to notice group norms, the hierarchies and dynamics. And their deepest fear is of not belonging. And their fundamental belief is that no man or no person is an island and they're dependent on the acceptance and inclusion of others in the group to be safe and to survive. So they focus their energy widely and externalize. And of course, the downside of that is that it can be scattered or confused or they spend way too much energy trying to gain acceptance with people that it doesn't really matter. And I'm holding my hand up here because that's definitely my subtype. And so their shadow side is their drive to adapt and fit into the group can lead them to seem insincere or performing or people-pleasing or even guarded because they're afraid of rejection. Now, the myth about the social subtype is sometimes people think it means they're sociable or extroverted, but it's not because introverts can also be social subtype. It's more about fitting in relative to others within that group. Okay, so that's the subtypes and, you know, keep that in mind as you study the um, Enneagram because it can make you kind of connect with your number more accurately if you know your subtype. So I'm not going to go into details about each of the numbers uh, because there are, for each of them, there are, you know, um, moral values, holy ideas, virtues, uh, fears, uh, vice. Uh, blind spots, idealized image, so those and defense mechanisms. So those are all important for you to understand about your number. I want to focus just as I wrap up this uh, podcast is on growth and transformation. And I've shared some of this before, but I'm sharing it again here because it's um, focused on the Enneagram. And I'm borrowing the idea of a pipeline from a book I read uh, um and I can't remember right off the top of my head, but I've quoted him before. It's Robert Mulholland. And he uses this pipeline as this connection between God and others. So on the one side this this of the pipe is this connection to God, this private intimacy with God. And that is our... Um, um, you know, one-on-one relationship with God. And then there's a pipe that connects us to others. And uh, Mulholland talks about this public intimacy with others and that we must be connected to God. And as only as we're connected to God, can we really truly be connected to other people. And that, in fact, it is a fruit of connection to God, that being connected to God isn't about just sitting there and spending time with Him alone. It ultimately is about bringing good into this world through our type. So the pipe then represents us, 
And if you kind of imagine around inside this pipe, the sludge of our fears, our defense mechanisms, our idealized image, our ego needs, our vices, our blind spots, our shadow self, it's that that can prevent God or the Holy Spirit to go through the pipe to interact with others. So our responsibility in our self-awareness and our growth is to clear the sludge out, is to recognize my fears, recognize my uh, blind spots and not let that hold me back. And as I clear it out, then my connection with God will allow His Holy Spirit through me, through my true self, to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. That makes sense. Now, the path of transformation is insight, to wisdom, to transformation, or knowing, to doing, to living. So insight is a very important first step. It's knowing um, ourselves well, knowing, you know, sort of like what I study, you know, in psychology, or you might study in engineering, it's just knowledge. And that's important. It's uh, also self-awareness. So it's knowledge about ourself. And it's also, if you're a person of uh, the Christian faith, it's understanding and knowing the truth of the Bible. But that doesn't do a thing because it just stays in our head. We have to actually actually do it. So knowledge lived out in practice. Self-awareness applied, which leads to, it has to lead to changed actions and behaviors. And biblical truth, or as we call it, orthopraxy, instead of just orthodoxy, orthopraxy is the practical application of biblical truth. But, you know, I can be wise today and I can do the right thing today, but if I'm not doing habitually, I'm not actually being transformed. So it's the wisdom that's lived out habitually over the long term that actually leads to true transformation. It's character change. That's um, real-time tracking and choosing better again and again and again so that eventually my character begins to change. And then as I'm living out the biblical truth, and I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. I can more and more produce the fruit of the Spirit that makes sense. So that's why this is an ongoing journey for our lifetime, because it's continuing to grow, it's continuing to learn, and it's continuing to do, and then applying that into doing, and then living it out on a habitual, regular basis. Now, the Enneagram talks about integration, so it's not a movement towards perfection, but it's a movement to greater and greater integration. And we've talked about this before. So I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but it's just the recognition that at any given time, I could be at a low state of integration, a moderate state of integration or high. And it's not about being perfect, but it's about being able to access all three centers, uh, the, the head, the body, and the heart. It's about being aware of my blind spots and not being um, reactive, but choosing better. And it's letting go of my core fears and not letting that shape so much of what I do. And so under times of stress or when there's a lot going on in our life, we can end up being lower in integration. So it's this moving thing, depending on a point of measurement of where we're going to be. But over time, it's moving more and more towards a higher degree of integration. Okay, so that's kind of my... Um, background information around the Enneagram. Um, I am um, adding a PDF of uh, a um, questionnaire or um, reading that is created by Chestnut, Beatrice Chestnut, that it's a good uh, free resource um, that uh, can help you if you don't know your number to sort that out. And um, 
and that's a place to start. Uh, and of course, if you want to get more in depth, then I would encourage you to reach out to Jillian and I, and we can kind of point you into some other directions for greater insight. And also, of course, coaching, if that's something you want to, uh, to pursue. Okay. I hope that's helpful. And Please do stay tuned for the next three episodes that we're going to be talking in depth about the numbers uh, so that you can kind of um, focus on the one that is yours for your personal growth. Um, But I would encourage you to listen to all of the uh, recordings of all nine types because uh, this is also about understanding everybody else in your lives so that we can um, handle conflict better, we can have greater compassion for each other, we can communicate to each other in a way that uh, we can uh, hear each other. Okay, thanks for tuning in. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fully Lived Life podcast. We hope you found it encouraging and helpful. Be sure to follow or subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. And if you enjoyed our show, please help spread the word by sharing with your friends and family and posting on your social media. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode.